With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Hot off the press from Maybelline New York, it's new Lifter Plump, an intense plumping lip gloss formulated with chili pepper to deliver a heated sensation for an instant plumping effect that lasts. From eight sizzling shades like Blush Blaze, Red Flag, Hot Honey, Coco Zing, and more. An extra-large wand applicator transforms lips in one swipe. Learn more at Maybelline.com. For a limited time, get 10% off your Lifter Plump purchase on Amazon with code 10PLUMP. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is The James Altucher Show. Today on The James Altucher Show. I was so excited to talk to Bobby Hundreds. If you don't know who he is, he started the hundreds.com, which is, I would say, is one of the, he might disagree, but I would say he's one of the premier and longest lasting streetwear brands out there. It's been around for 17 years, came out of the whole skateboarding, surfing, punk subculture in California in the OOs. He grew up in the 80s and 90s, started this company in 2003. He wrote a book, This Is Not a T-Shirt, which is about the subculture, how to start a clothing line that's based on such an intense subculture, how to build a community around it, how to build a brand around it. And so many of the principles that he discusses in the book and then on this podcast apply to everything in business. It's so important. The principles of why a subculture flourishes and is attractive to so many young people and even adults, those principles are the same things that make people loyal to a brand or a company or make a product exciting to have. But listen to this podcast and and see what a true artist has to say about business, subcultures, fashion, and what's happening next. What have you been up to today? Uh, Mondays are just, you know, I've never had, I don't know, everyone calls it something different. Sunday scaries, Monday blues or whatever. I've never had it before. I've always been super excited to go to work every Monday morning. Like Sunday, it's basically starting from Saturday on. I'm like, can't wait to get back to work on Monday. And just throughout the course of the pandemic, I've been developing Sunday blues or Sunday scaries. I've it's just Mondays are really hard for me. And I don't know if it's because I'm spending much more time with my family and at home than I ever have in my life, which at the- so, so it, it, That you make it sound, it could be either a bad thing or a good thing based on how you just said it. Yeah, I mean, and maybe it's both, right? Like that's something else that I've been considering more throughout this year is things can are just generally both. Like it's amazing hanging out with my wife and kids this much, but it's also- at, t- at times paralyzing, you know, like it's just so much. <laughs> well, you've spent, you've spent your whole adult life building up this brand and I'll introduce you in a second, but I like just chatting for a while. Yeah. Uh, you, you're, this is what your whole focus has been. You probably, you know, the world's turned a little sideways and mm. not only that, the world is depressed. And since you're always trying to pick up on 
themes and trends and what's going on and what's going on with your community, they're depressed and they lost yeah. their jobs. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they don't know what the future is going to look like. Yeah, that's a, that's a very real thing. I mean, and I feel the same way, right? I'm very fortunate yeah. that I have a job right now, but who's to say that this job exists within a month, two months, six months, a year, you know? Especially fashion has always been such a finicky, unpredictable marketplace. And then you add this thing to it, it's just, you know, we don't have cash reserves to last us a year. You know, like we're just not equipped. We're a small business. We're not equipped like that. We pretty much live month to month in, in a lot of ways. And so also when you're looking at the way that fashion and clothing is set up, you know, especially if you're omni-channel, you sell direct through your online store, through your flagship stores, which we do have, or you sell wholesale, right? Um, or you do both, which is what we do. But half of our business just shut out overnight because all the stores closed around the world. And yeah. so we couldn't sell to anyone else. We only had to pump through our channels and had to pivot really quickly to becoming just a direct brand, which is a science in itself. So a couple of questions there, um, just out of curiosity. Did, I'm assuming online sales went up. Was that enough to counter? Uh, yeah, it was almost, we're almost there, um, shockingly. You know, the online uh, reception for the brand has just been through the roof. And so we are not where we were a year ago in terms of an overall business, but we're closing that gap. You know, the online has really, really come through. And did you, was there any other way you were able to pivot? Like, for instance, you could have made, you know, the hundred surgical masks. <laughs> well, we, ended, we, had, we made masks in the beginning. There was such a, I wasn't actually really that interested in making them, but there was such a demand for masks from our audience who were used to, you know, just surgical masks or boring masks from the store. And they were saying, hey, this is somewhat of a fashion accessory as well. And so much of my industry, streetwear, is driven by the Asian marketplace. And the Asian brands, streetwear brands, have been making masks, like cool-looking masks, for years because they've lived through SARS and yeah. they've dealt with all of this before. And so it's really normal to already see that happening. There were trends five, six years ago within like cool premium streetwear brands making cool masks to wear. And so we were already ahead of the pack in that sense and that that was that's very normal for our customer um and but now you, it's you're, catching up. yeah your stuff's so colorful compared to like just wearing some like light blue surgical mask like yeah. <laughs> that, i was just thinking like why didn't i order some masks from you guys like that would have been pretty cool yeah but uh let me just say i'm talking to bobby hundreds aka bobby kim and you started with your partner ben you started the hundreds which over the past 20 years has been a consistently popular and growing. I don't know. I, I don't even like using the word streetwear brand. <laughs> You're, you basically have built like uh, uh, clothing and design and art or artistic clothing around kind of the subculture you grew up in, this skateboarding, surf skate subculture, hardcore mm. punk type of subculture you grew up in and there's a community around streetwear like i feel like between streetwear clothes uh uh you know music uh exporty type stuff like skateboarding surfing there's like a a culture and a philosophy 
And I really, mm. I'm kind of, I'll, I'll let you talk in a second, but I'm kind of jealous in a good way. It must feel so good to grow up in a subculture and then create a company around just the philosophy and art and design of that and community of that subculture. I think it's a really great thing. Yeah, it, I have the best job in the world. I, I was just talking about this this weekend with somebody because um, we'll get to it later, but I wrote a book, but I'm also in the process of writing my next book, which is a young adult fiction novel. And it's all set around a, a teenager um, as a protagonist. And someone was asking me, my friend was asking me, why are you writing from that perspective? And I was like, in many ways I stopped growing at that age. You know, I'm so much, I'm cemented at the age of 13. The music I listen to, I still dress like I'm 13 years old. You know, I'm still making a lot of the choices I was making when I was 13. And that was such a critical time in my life and many people's lives. And so the fact that everything that I loved and was enamored with during that window of my existence, that I get to dwell in it forever and share it with my audience, educate and inform them on a lot of these cool things that I was into back then and getting them up to speed with it. And then also just like being cognizant of what younger people are, are into now, just I'm more emotionally on their level than I am someone who's my age, you know? So it's awesome. Like I basically, I'm like Peter Pan. I never grew up, you know, I, I get to it, it work in this space every day and get to make money you know, talking about Garfield uh, or, uh, you know, talking about skateboarding and like working with skate companies or sneaker companies like Nike and, uh, or a Puma or Adidas, you know, like just working within that world. I think also that's the, like, the idea of subculture is so interesting. Like everybody, when they kind of graduate youth, they get the corporate job because they want you know, they got to pay for the mortgage and the family and the responsibilities. And it's such a pleasure. They kind of leave their subcultures or, or subcultures are just things for the weekend. Like, oh, I'm going to make a microbrewery on the weekend, or I'm going to go <laughs> fishing on the weekend or watch, you know, play in my fantasy sports league on, on yeah. the weekend. But I always think there's some subcultures that it's almost like there's a, a code to them. There's like a set of values that go along with them. And, mm -hmm. and by the way, you mentioned your book. Uh, the book's called This Is Not a T-Shirt, which is basically about this, how it's more than just streetwear. It's, it's a brand, it's a culture, it's a community. And you talk about essentially, it's a, it's a memoir and, and mm -hmm. most of it is the development of you growing up in this culture and, and then building this incredible fashion business in it and the ups and downs of that because it was mm. it's never easy. People people think there's like a hump where you get over that and suddenly like everything's easy with business, but that is just never true. It is never, ever, ever true. The no. problems get worse, actually. Everything gets harder. You work yeah. twice as hard for half the money is what I say. It's funny. That when, could be. Yeah. <laughs> when we were starting, you know, we started this brand in our early 20s and um, I think my partner Ben and I, who I own this business with, we used to tell ourselves we have to grind it out now. Like we're going to work hard now in our 20s so that we can build our company, the infrastructure. We can have a staff who can, you know, take over the hard work. And by the time we're in our 40s and 50s, we're going to be just cruising on a yacht and just enjoying kind of like the fruit of the land. And uh, if someone could have gone back and told me, actually, with more staff. There's more administrative duties, there's more headaches, more things can go wrong. You're making more product. Uh, there's just more chance for error everywhere. And then there's just greater responsibility. You have a 
a wider stage, you know? And so there's more expectation of you. Do you even want to go on a yacht? <laughs> no, it's, no, no, I don't. You know, that's, that's the irony too, is that, um, you know, the promise of uh, we can sell this company for hundreds of millions of dollars one day, um, that's what drives a lot of young brands and young up entrepreneurs and upstarts. But for somebody like me, uh, if you handed me $200 million or $100 million, $50 million to leave this company today, that'd be really nice, just psychologically, knowing I have a safety net somewhere, but I'd be right back here in this office, you know. I'd probably take a vacation for a week, but I'd be right back in here and my yacht would be parked wherever it is in some harbor somewhere and I would still be doing exactly what I do every day. So the promise of wealth or this goal, it doesn't really resonate much with me. It's not really what drives me to do this every day. It reminds me, I, I did a podcast once with Peter Thiel, who was the first investor in Facebook. And he was telling me how at one point early on, Facebook had uh, an offer from, I think, Microsoft for a billion dollars. And Zuckerberg was 24 years old and he would have made 250 million. And everybody wanted him to take it because who knows, you know, yeah. Friendster, MySpace, all these things had disappeared. Maybe Facebook would. And here's you know, they all wanted to take their money off the table. And, and at the board meeting, Mark was like, no, I don't want to sell. Even though he was 20, imagine being 24 and being offered $250 million. And he, he said like, look, what am I going to do with $250 million? I'm just going to um, want to start a social network and make it popular. <laughs> and I already did that. I'm already doing that right now. Yeah. So it's a, it's a good insight. And I, and again, that's part of the envy here is that I don't think I've ever been involved in a startup where I felt that way, where I was like, okay, I could do this until I'm 90 years old mm. and not want to do anything else. And I think it's because it's not just like you love doing it. It's this is your culture. You've contributed to the culture you grew up loving, mm. which let's, let's maybe start with that. Like, you know, what is, or how I have my thoughts on this, but, but you describe it well in, in the book, and I'm just fascinated by this sort of stuff. How would you describe the combination between skate culture, uh, yeah. punk? Because clothing, I think, sort of grew into the, these cultures in the 90s as a, as a commercial thing. Like yeah. in, in the early 80s, there wasn't like, there might have been punk brands and punk clothes, but it wasn't like as commercial as it became right. in the 90s and 00s. Right, right. And, yeah, and, and I don't say that's a bad or a good thing. It's an interesting thing. Right. It's, and again, it's one of those things that it, it's both. I think it's good and, and in many ways bad as well. We, same, I grew up in the 80s. You know, I'm an, I was born in 1980. And so the subcultures that I was immersed in, which was skateboarding, hardcore, the backpack rap scene of the 90s, rave in the 90s, there were brands that were eventually associated with them, but there wasn't necessarily an, an industry or at least a viable industry structured around any of it. You know, they, they were mainly largely art projects, which is how we still looked at it all, you know, because growing up again, like 80s off the tail of the 70s, where a lot of this subculture dress was more about tribal identifiers. You know, you were just really trying to associate with particular communities or distinguishing yourself from somebody uh, that you weren't, you know, othering someone else. And so uh, people weren't really looking at it like, I'm going to make a million dollars designing clothing that looks like this or is borrowing from it. There was so much credibility hewed into, like, like literally figuratively, the, the fabric. You know, you had to be a part of the scene. You had to uh, contribute. You had to 
have been, uh, you know, you've had to have paid your debts, you know, and toiled in the scene in order to dress a certain way. And so um, in the 90s, that was a really big thing was, you know, you couldn't carry a skateboard if you didn't know how to do a kickflip, if you didn't skate, you couldn't wear certain brand, you couldn't wear skate shoes. You know, if you're going to wear a band uh, t-shirt, you know, you had to have listened to the band, you had to love the, the band. And so there's so much code associated with it. And uh, we, uh, me, meaning myself and a lot of my peers in this industry, we grew up knowing and understanding a lot of that language. And then when we developed our brands, we still kind of uh, carried a lot of that same philosophy in, in terms of what streetwear was about. Like you need to be responsible to the culture. You need to be caught up on the history. You have to respect. There's so much respect and knowledge built into what we were doing. You couldn't just wear a brand. You like you had to know everything about the brand, you know. And now in 2020, look, it's it's almost 20 years later that we started this company, and, and our generation of streetwear began. And um, a lot of that code and language is lost. A lot of that respect is lost. Um, it has become largely more about how expensive your clothes are, uh, how, you know, what the price ticket is, how much it resells for, um, and celebrity attachments, celebrity endorsements, which was also pretty much the opposite of, of most subculture movements when, when right. we were starting. Right, because I, I kind of think from, uh, you know, hardcore culture, skate culture, and so on, initially, it was about the, hey, where you know, we're breaking our elbows and knees and got the clothes to show for it and got the skateboards to show for it. And also there's a certain uh, skepticism towards authority, right? Mm. So uh, not that, not in the kind of Hollywood version of what punk is, but I feel like, you know, skate, like look at skateboarding in California in the early nineties, it was, wasn't it illegal for a while because everybody, you know, everybody was concerned kids were going to get hurt yeah. so there was always this like tension between being an adult and being a kid who wants to do tricks on the skateboard yeah and similar with with punk i feel it like you know there was a natural rebellion to rock and then almost like an angry rebellion to metal and then kind of this th then then i i don't know how would you describe like the transition from like metal to punk or maybe it was maybe there was a different transition maybe it was rock to punk i don't know yeah i mean that's wow that's like a much more complicated conversation but i think it all comes back to deconstruction kind of um questioning why certain systems or structures set up this, the way that they are and if you're looking at rock and roll at that time in america um and it becoming more of a mainstream platform of a type of music that even your parents could enjoy and appreciate that was playing on the radio, that was playing, you know, on primetime television, then punk is going to move in and question um, everything about it, you know, and resist it and go against. And that's why even I grew up in a straight edge hardcore scene, which was, you know, hardcore going against punk and then straight edge working within that. And, and then it starts breaking just into lifestyle habits and patterns of, you know, if, if punks are going to, dress this way and smoke and, and do drugs and drink, then we're going to do the opposite of that and constantly opposing. You know, I think that it's just like, it's just a very young, uh, I, I don't know, I've always admired it. You know, just the way that youth culture works and just the youth perspective. And I think it comes from, you know, at that age, you're separating yourself from your parents, your families, and you're trying to identify who you are 
you know, and uh, that comes down to the music you listen to, the food you eat. You know, I was a vegan when I was 14 years old, like in the mid 90s, you know, like saying I'm not going to, you know, I grew up in a Korean household and I'm telling my parents I'm vegan, which at that time people didn't even really understand vegetarianism. And then I was a vegan. So, you know, like just being completely anti everything and saying I'm going to wipe the slate clean, everything you taught me and everything you're saying is wrong, you know, from my parents to my teachers to the government to society. And I want to do it my way. And like, that's what makes the world turn, you know, is young people thinking like that for right, for better, or for worse, you know? So, so I wonder if like now, and I don't mean to say, I, I, I always hate it when I say, oh, kids now, they don't get the blah, blah, blah. Cause I'm sure they have their own forms of rebellion, but it does seem like it doesn't come out in terms of the music or the clothes right now the way their own rebellion is. Maybe it comes out a little bit more politically. I don't know. But like, like again, in, in, you know, just the way you described it, it's, there's always this feeling of against, you know, you're going to be skateboarding against, you're going to be uh, listening to the music against. And in general, and you describe this, I forget it was in the book or one, one of your blogs, uh, that there was always this skepticism towards everything. And that's part of the culture. And I think that's part of being an artist as well. So you start off as an artist which, who makes clothes in this culture. I think artists have to walk into a room and they're the ones who see what's different in the room. Everyone else says, what's, oh, this looks great, this room. The artist who walks in and says, this is what, this is the one thing that looks different in this room and is able to notice that through society to to make their art yeah this is just me riffing on art i don't know but uh no totally i i do touch a little bit uh, about on that in the book as well is that as an artist i've always been drawn just the way that i'm hardwired i'm always drawn to leveling out in imperfection right like if there's a wrinkle i want to flatten it if it's a flat piece of fabric i want to wrinkle it you know, to me, the world is never good enough, right? That's why we are exhausting people to be around because we always have something that we'd like to fix. Like I'm drinking out of my Nalgene bottle and as I'm doing it, I'm like, why is this spout so, why is it so hard to drink out of this spout? Why can't we design this better? And then I'll go and then I'll try to fix that, right? So we're constantly nitpicking at the world. I watch a movie and I'm like, I wish I'd gone this way. And then I'll go just make the movie myself the way I want to make it, right? It's this, it's this egocentric, a narcissistic point of view where no one can do it as good as you can do it. Like you see all the problems with it, you know how to fix it. And that goes from art and goes into my work. It also goes into like just the way that I look at social issues, politics, activism, like all of that, right? And so if everyone is moving in one direction, I, I so the book is called This Is On T-Shirt. It's, it's basically a parody of, of a old Fugazi fake merchandise shirt that said, this is not a Fugazi T-Shirt. And Fugazi was, um, uh, in its earlier iteration, you can say was Minor Threat. And Minor Threat had a cover of sheep, right? And there's all these white sheep going one direction and a black sheep going in the other direction. And that's pretty much how I've, I guess, framed my entire life. If everyone is moving in one direction, it must be wrong. No matter how accurate or truthful it is, like it must be wrong, or at least I must question and challenge it, which is, I think, James, why I'm so drawn to you all the time because you will uh, look at things in that sense. You know, if everyone is talking about the pandemic in this sense, you're going to take a completely different approach. And I always want to know what that other approach is. Yeah. And I think, and I think it's not for the sake of being contrary, but to actually just have an open mind. There's yes. always 360 degrees of looking at things. 
And uh, I should mention too, your uh, one clever thing with your book, this is not a t-shirt, is that you have uh, the J.D. Salinger uh, cover design and font and everything for nine stories, which, you know, kind of like um, the next generation of that rebellious spirit that he kind of, um, yeah. you know, rode that wave in the 50s. Yeah. So, uh, but, you know, when, it, well, it's interesting also about Straight Edge and, and Minor Threat, because Ian McKay, um, when he was with Minor Threat, wrote that song, Straight Edge, which he totally now says, and he he's viewing this philosophically too. Like, okay, if everybody started doing Straight Edge, even though I wrote the song, I'm not associating myself with Straight Edge. <laughs> so, and then there was Bent Edge, right? Which was against <laughs> Straight Edge. So it always keeps on going. And I wonder though, I wonder though, well, we'll, we'll get to this, but, uh, you know, clothes at some point have gone from first they what went from things just people wear mm. then they kind of i think i feel like with um people like mark echo at complex damon john fubu sure. all the people you mentioned in your book on the california side that everything started to get more commercial which is fine because kids mm. wanted to identify with these philosophies around the country so they you know everybody benefited and then now it's sort of morphed into more of this, you know, my daughter, everybody's just trading on StockX, their yeah. Supreme clothes and Supreme knockoffs and this and that. <laughs> I love that your daughter's into that stuff. Oh, she's totally into it. Yeah. And then she's, she now has been trying, like kids love making clothes that define how they feel, right? Yeah. Which is why you feel like a kid do, still doing this. Yeah. And she's got her own store on Depop and is, Tie dyeing vintage clothes and is selling clothes and awesome. She loves it. Yeah, you're, you're, I need the link. You need to drop. All right, the I'll link. send it to you. Okay. Um, it is like it, it. It's a fascinating time. You know, ten years ago, let's say around the 2010 mark, there was a lot of discussion around. You know, streetwear had sold out at that point and gone commercial because brands like ours were going more mass and wide scale. And uh, then there was like a new generation of streetwear brands that came in to kind of resist and challenge what, what our generation had done. Now all of a sudden we were kind of antiquated and you know, sell out. And, um, and so it, every four or five years this happens again. Another set of kids comes in who are 16 to 20 years old. They start new brands. Everyone looks at it differently. Right now there's this like really strong movement, especially swelled around BLM of a lot of black owned streetwear brands, which is also like a part of the conversation that has been missing for so long. And so a lot of young black owned streetwear brands coming to the mix and contributing and um, showing what they got too. So like there's always this movement, momentum, you know, and this tension between going too big and too popular, which is kind of the point, right, of building a brand and a business. I always say from the first day that you decide to sell something, you really are selling out because you're not doing it for yourself anymore. You're doing it in, in exchange for money. So, like, wait, but the, isn't it Tony Hawk who said, or I forget if it was him or not, but who said, um, "You're not selling out if you're selling." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think he, yeah, I think Tony did say that. And Tony is like a great example of um, someone who he got a lot of heat for, and he continues to do so. Right for a few years, I sat on Tony Hawk's yeah. board for the Tony Hawk Foundation, and. Um, we used to have this conversation all the time because starting in the 90s, he was the Bagel Bites guy and the Butterfinger. Or he was always like backing some corporate sponsor. And especially in the 90s when skateboarding was still so core. I mean, it, it still is to this day. Like it still has such a core audience. 
And so for Tony, who was the most notable skateboarder of our generation to come around and to constantly be endorsing sponsors, corporations, and then making a lot of money against it was always like, that was always just like a hot discussion point, you know? But you, and, and it was a hot discussion point, And this is where your philosophy kind of merged with your business model, because I think by you feeling, hey, this is, you know, going back to that initial feeling of like, hey, you have to ride the skateboard to, to carry it. You have to have heard the music to wear the shirt. You didn't want to mass produce and mass sell your clothes initially. This was an argument within your company. And it was, yeah. How, how do you resolve that? Because you're, you are a business um, and, and businesses kind of expand naturally. Like, but, but at the same time, you had this great feeling of scarcity that you were creating. You were only selling initially to skate shops. You, you would go to the, the clothing um, uh, conventions or whatever and, and have a black tarp over your, your clothing line so people couldn't see unless, I mean, you wouldn't let people in to see your clothes. There you were at the conference or convention and you wouldn't let people in to see your clothes. So you, your philosophy translated quite well into this feeling of scarcity so people would even want your clothes even more. Yeah, I think that just came from um, a punk rock ethos of we can't get too big. I hated when my favorite bands would end up on the radio and they would sign a major deal, right? That's, then they were just dead to me, you know? And it, was, it came from so much emotional insecurity of this is my thing and how dare you do that to me. You know, you're my favorite artist and now I have to share you with everybody else. I want it all to myself. I'm just being selfish with it. And so we built the brand the same way. We just didn't want it to get to a point where everybody was wearing it. The entire uh, point, the point of it, the purpose of it was to create clothing that when you wore it at school, that it felt special, that you felt like an individual, that nobody else had it. You know, in large part, we were responding to a generation that had come, off, come up off of Gap. You know, in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was this campaign with Gap saying everybody's in khakis. I don't know if you remember those commercials. Mm -mm. Uh, they would do these like kind of swing dancing commercials and everybody in khakis. And then the next one would be like everybody in cargos. And I would watch these commercials and say like, no, everybody's not in khakis. Like khakis are disgusting or cargos or, or those types of cargos are gross. Like we're not everybody. I'm not everybody. I'm not a part of that. And I felt the same way when I would go out into some of the more cl popular clothing stores and seeing a lot of the clothes that, oh, everyone's wearing this now, especially Von Dutch, Christian Audigier, the designer at the time, he had a brand called Von Dutch, Ed Hardy, he was making these mesh trucker caps that Paris Hilton was wearing and everyone was wearing it. And I just thought it looked bad. I just thought it was bad fashion, you know? And, and the, the idea that everyone was just willingly going along with all this, not questioning whether this looked good or not, you know, whether that hat frames the face well or whether it even makes sense, the materials about it. We're only doing it because of trend and celebrity association. It really irked me. And so the brand was kind of founded on a lot of these ideals and principles of, you know, let's give you something that comes from a really genuine, authentic place, a person that you recognize and you can, that you know who's me. Like, I'll be completely transparent about everything that we're doing. Every design that we make has a reason, a purpose, a story. Like there's literally a concept and story behind everything that we do. And so in a lot of ways, the brand almost became like a storytelling of my life. Everything that I was discovering and I was enjoying, I would share with the audience. I was almost taking their hand and walking them through, you know, like the so, process. So 
Give, give me an example because you you mentioned this in the in the book that um, the, even these initial shirts you were making had a story behind it as opposed to many other brands. What's an example of a story behind a shirt? Like what what would that be? What would oh, that look wow. like? I mean, you can pretty much pull any shirt. So our our most iconic design is this cartoon bomb. It's our mascot. Yeah. His name is Adam Bomb. And what he represents, well, number one, he was inspired by Saturday morning cartoons. So much of our framework was centered around 80s and 90s pop culture growing up in America. And Saturday morning cartoons were a thing. Looney Tunes, Wiley e. Coyote, and the Roadrunner with the cartoon bomb. But I also like the bomb because it was a metaphor for the brand. It, it actually never explodes if you look at it. And so I wanted to kind of uh, design the brand in the same sense of it is just bubbling under the surface. It's right about to get there, but we'll never let it explode. I don't want it going everywhere, right? So there's like a story behind that. We had an early shirt called Self-Offense, which was, um, it's a derogatory term now, but in the 50s or 60s, they would make these guns. They were called Polish pistols, and the, um, the cannon was like basically pointed right back at you. And so I designed like a modern, uh, it was more of a, like a police gun uh, drawn like that. And there was just many interpretations you could have, you know, maybe it was like the cops killing themselves or maybe it was a statement about gun control. You know, the more guns we're putting out there that we're harming more people than we're actually helping or defending. Um, and so just everything, t-shirts especially are uh, conversation pieces, right? And that was really the spiritual center of what this brand was supposed to be about was just to bring people together, right? Connecting, community. And the best, easiest way to do that from a fashion perspective is to have some kind of statement, a design, an interesting take on a t-shirt for someone to latch onto and say, hey, what's that about? Or can I talk to you about your shirt? And just get a conversation going. So that's what it, all, what it was all about from the very beginning. I just want to get the conversation going. I want people to talk. I want people to like share ideas, you know, even if they have opposing ideas, I want them to talk and exchange. And that's where our community stemmed from was a lot of like really crazy, weird looking graphics. We had one that was a parody of um, Super Friends, the 1970s cartoon with all the DC superheroes. Uh, I changed it to say Bitter Enemies and it was like all of them beating each other up. And so on the surface, it's just like a really cool parody streetwear t-shirt. But when you actually look at it, you're like, well, why are they all fighting? And I'm like, well, a lot of times, you know, people who are supposed to be your best friends are the ones that you actually end up beefing with the most, um, especially like in an industry like ours, like it can turn that quickly. And so just talking about like that kind of stuff, you know, so everything had a reason. It wasn't just designing just because. We never designed just because. Even the color of our t-shirts, half of them are black because those are themed around the 80s and a lot of the subcultures of the 80s from the punk scene to the Sunset Strip metal, hair metal scene to NWA and gangster rap. You know, and then the other half of our clothes are thematically arranged around bright colors and festive colors, like what I have around me. And that comes from the 90s rave scene and independent skate apparel from the 90s. And so everything had to have a reason and a purpose. And again, it's all exhausting, but it all makes sense. You know, I just want everything to make sense and have a reason. And, and not to be like, you know, throwing out the the business maxims, but this makes sense from a business perspective as well. And every product's got us have a story. You look at like the difference between Steve Jobs and the iPhone and prior MP4 players or even prior smartphones, the beginnings of smartphones, they didn't have stories around them. And Steve Jobs built this whole story around the iPhone and the, and the design of it and the functionality of it and so on. And I think that's proven to be very you know powerful in business. So you, whether through 
business sense or stumbling into it from the subculture that uh, created all this and, and created your aesthetic, it was, it was the right decisions from a business point of view. And so I was curious then, how did you deal, and you, you talk about this in the book, but at what point to really grow, you have to say, okay, we're going to mass market. We can't just limit ourselves to the, 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 uh, you know, skate culture stores. And, and just, just before yeah. that, also you, you were so passionate about this culture that you were designing for and this community that you were designing for that comes through in the clothes. So what, what I think ends up happening is it's almost like you're bottling the culture up for all the kids who want to be rebellious or who want to you know, be, be different and they're, and they, and they don't have an outlet for that in their, in their town or whatever. So it almost kind of becomes this self-defeating cycle. They get your clothes, but then they're all wearing it, <laughs> which defeats the purpose, yeah. but it's still, but, but it's still coming out of your passion for, for this culture and they're appreciating mm. it. So, yeah. so it's a tricky thing. It is a really tricky thing. It's a delicate balance that I don't think I've ever been able to master and navigate well, um, and I don't think I ever will, but it, so I think I'm always in the pursuit of this idea that I can be and maintain this idea of being underground and core and being intimate with our audience, but at the same time being able to reach enough of them, right? So like, where is that happy medium? And one way that we think we've been able to hit it is uh, when we do um, offerings, we call them drops once a week, every Thursday, there's like a new drop on our website. You know, some of that product is, it, it is still inc extremely limited for our audience. Like there'll be like a hundred pieces or I'll just personally hand make things. Like I'll, you know, throughout the course of the pandemic, I, I hand uh, screen printed some sweats myself or I did a bleaching process. I made a whole Instagram stories about it where I set up a hundred pairs of sweats and I was painting them with bleach. And so these are things that I can guarantee you that nobody else in your community are going to have if you have a chance to get it. It just, it's a bummer because our audience is really quite big now. And so if I make a hundred of something, it'll sell out immediately. So you just have to be really fast on it. So if you do miss out on that, there are takedowns that are more mass marketed, more mainstream design that anyone can get, you know, that we make them unlimited. So there are just segments now within the collection where some things are meant to be just really small and if you want to feel special or if you just don't want to deal with the hassle of waiting in line or having to you know compete against everyone else to grab something like we have some more readily available product as well but i think that is something that that tension will always exist for a brand like ours you know to, to many of our customers we are you know or, or not our non-customers we are like the archetype of the sellout streetwear brand, right? Like there are kids who think that we killed streetwear in a lot of ways. So they made it so widely known and accessible, the whole, you know, making it transparent, writing a book about it, writing a blog about it every day for 10 years and letting so many people into this secret club really ruined it. And then you have the other half of our, you know, the other segment of the population of streetwear kids who are like, Look, because he opened it up, I was able to discover a lot of my favorite brands. You know, the Hundreds was the gateway brand for me to understand what Supreme was or Off-White, know who Virgil Abloh was, get into Nikes and reselling. And uh, many kids grow up to become entrepreneurs themselves. You know, they don't necessarily build streetwear brands, but I've had like restaurant owners and app developers and all kinds of people coming to me saying like, I grew up wearing your brand because of everything you talked about in your 
in your blog about how to build a business and branding and your thought process on design and all that ideology, I was able to now do this with my life and they've developed careers out of it. And so, you know, it's a give and take. I, I totally understand the frustration, but, uh, so, you know, once I write about this in a book too, but I think I, le- I lived my life so long being this underdog, you know, I'm a middle child, you know, I'm a I'm an Asian-American person growing up in a community where there just weren't a lot of Asians. You know, so there were so many things that I had thought were stacked up against me, and I just I, I kind of uh, uh, built and designed the brand to be coming from that perspective always of, like, we're the underdog, we're the underdog, we're the, we're the underdog, which got us to a point. But then you have to realize at what level do you start fighting like a champion? And that was the transition that I think happened within the last five, six years in this company to where we really own the fact that we are really not the underdogs, even though that is our attitude with a lot of the way that we approach things in life, in our business, in our work. But um, at the end of the day, when people look at our brand now, and, and even though we've only been around 17 years, uh, that is a heritage brand in the streetwear space. You know, I say it's like, it's like you're 300 years in, in streetwear years at that point, you know, because brands just don't last that long. Do you think you need an underdog to, to have something to fight for? Is that like a hard adjustment? Yeah, because, well, for me, I just, so much of how I've always viewed the world was to be fighting against the authority in the mainstream. And uh, obviously this is all coming from a lot of issues, deep-seated issues and undealt with issues I had with my parents and with my father growing up, right? And so everything was always just about getting one up on the man, you know, fighting back, resisting, and, uh, and then when you get to a point in your career where you look around and you're like, what? Oh, hold on, now I'm the problem, right? I'm defining what the trends are and I am now the leader in my business or um, now in the marketplace, everyone's looking to me like, oh, you're one of the guys who founded this and you know, you're leading the way. And I'm like, oh, wow, like, there's a lot of responsibility there. Um, I have a duty to my audience. I have a duty to this business you know, to not treat it like, oh, I'm just like this pathetic little guy who's like trying to get one up on everyone. It's like, and my customers now, the kids who are supporting this brand every day, those are the ones, they're looking to me like, we're going to put you out of business one day. And I tell them that all the time. You know, one of the questions I get asked from a lot of budding entrepreneurs and streetwear designers is they say, um, you know, how do I win the respect of my peers? Or, or, or how do I win the respect of the elders or the, the pioneers? I just want the respect of brands like you guys. And I would say, you shouldn't be trying to earn our respect. You should be doing everything you can to piss us off every day. Like that is your role as a young person, as a new brand, as a fresh face in the scene, is to constantly put me on my toes, make me just hate the day that I ever inspired you. You know, you should be trying to put me out of business. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I I became a really good guest of Airbnbs. And I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others 
Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests. And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be... VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of, because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything and go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? <laughs> Yes, I definitely gonna use him from now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy, James. I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? 
But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. You have this great line where you say you can't crowdsource validation. Once you leave it up to your your customers and your audience, and I think this is true not for just for business, but for any art form at all, whether it's art, writing, film, comedy, anything, you can't just rely on, oh, my audience liked this before, so that means they only like me because I do this, so I better keep feeding them. Right. Because they're not really that, they're not as loyal as you think. No. To you. They're loyal maybe to an idea, right. but they're going to grow past that idea at some point, as, as should the artist. Right. They, you know, people aren't dumb, and kids aren't dumb. Uh, as much as many businesses that I know, a lot of other brands, they may treat our, uh, th- their customer base as other teenagers that they don't know and they're just following a trend. They're really not. Like, they're very much aware. And so I don't try to talk down to them. I don't try to placate them. You know, even the way that I write in the book, it's not necessarily, like, elementary. Like, I try to use, you know, complicated language when I express a lot of my ideas and sometimes people say, oh, you're kind of like talking over, you talk in a way where it sounds really pretentious in your Instagram captions. And I'm like, I just don't treat my audience like they're dumb. I think that they know a lot better. They don't want to be treated like, you know, they're just sheep. And I want them to have a brain, you know? Like I treat them like, I have, like they have a brain. And I do the same with our design offerings, you know? It's really easy to fall into traps with trends where something's working and we're like, let's just pump the shit out of that and make a lot of money because we can, or this is happening in, in the marketplace, so we're going to go with that. Um, yeah, from a business point of view, sometimes you have to make some of those decisions just to cover your rent, get your overhead situated so I can pay my staff. But we don't stick to trends for too long because at a certain point I'm like, they know I'm pandering to them. You know, like I don't want to pander. I want to challenge them. I want them. I want to give them something that where they're like, "Oh, that's ugly. I'm not really into it." And then have them look at it, look at design and product in a new way, so that in a year from now they're like, "Oh, I get what he was trying to do. He was ahead of the curve." That kind of like pushed me to think differently. I just, I think that is our our responsibility as designers and as business owners. It's like we should be challenging people to be better, not just satiating them with sugar and candy all day. I think though, like you, like you point out in the book, there's always this tendency later on that you start being afraid. Oh my gosh, did I do my best work like 15 years ago or 10 years ago? And the audience, they're not going to want what I have to say next. They wanted this mm-hmm. old kind of, you know, hardcore sort of outlook on things, on clothes, on whatever. And I think, I think again, I think every writer deals with that. I, th- I think it's the the graveyard of art is when you succumb to the 
the customer's needs over your own, the, 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 the fans needs over your own. But then there's a, but there's a give and take because you still have to make clothes that work clothes. You still have to make clothes that they're going to enjoy that somebody's right. going to enjoy. Yeah. And cause you don't want to go out of business just doing, you know, you don't want to go totally radical and do something just because you want to do it. You're in business too. Yeah. I have to consider them always. Right. So, um, that's another question I often get asked about. Where do you draw the line between designing for yourself and designing for other people? Uh, I do have to consider the audience all the time. This brand is not just mine. All right? And when I talk about the brand being this living community, I mean it. Like it's uh, Sure, I'm one of the owners of this company in terms of like the money that comes in, but in terms of who has an ownership feeling of the entire brand. They grew up with it. They feel like their voice actually matters, and there's a democratic process into how we make things. Um, that's a really real thing with our brand. You know, I don't want it to be just this is everything from my point of view, what I want to do. Because if I did that, if I wanted to do that, it, it, those are, we can do those. Those are called art projects. Those are called garage projects that you do within the confines of your home or your basement. And I have those too. I have ghost brands that I've developed, that I have folders of these things on my laptop that I designed just for fun. They're for nobody else to see. I have poetry that I've written. There's essays that I've written that are for nobody, right? Journaling entries. They're for nobody. They just live in locked folders on my computer desktop. And those are for me. Like, I do that, and I really enjoy doing it. Sometimes I'll spend weeks doing them. I'm like, I don't need anybody to see this. But this project is something that I share with everybody. People get my logo tattooed on them, right? I talk about in the book, Travis Scott, YG. They have our atom bomb icon tattooed on their arms. So it means as much to them as it means to me. It encapsulates chapters of people's lives. So it's not just a dictatorship of, I want to do whatever I want to do. No, I have to consider other points of view. You know? But it was interesting what, um, you're, you're, you, you visited Seoul a few years ago in, in South Korea and you, you hang out with your slightly bigger uh, contemporary, Chan Ho, I think his name is, and he tells you that this means you can actually do more of what you want to do because now you have a bigger business. And I, I was trying to understand exactly what he meant there. Like what, what, and, but I, I'm understanding a little more just seeing how you're, you're operating now. Yeah, I think um, what we were addressing at that point, well, I was having a really hard time at that point in my career knowing if I was staying authentic and true to myself and the brand and what I initially got into this for. Was, at that point, was I just doing it for money? You know, work had become really difficult. We were between trends. We were, our, our brand was just transitioning from being this small, unknown underdog to now we are mainstream to now, like, what are you? You know, you just kind of exist and you're not really cutting edge anymore. And there's always, there's something sexier. You, you're, you're like a junior in high school now, you know? You're not like the respected senior. You're not like the cool new kid on the block. It's just like, who are you? What is this brand? And I was in Korea and spending time with Chan Oh, he owns a brand called Lifel. And I asked him the same question. I said, um, can you be a big brand? Like the bigger you get, can you stay authentic? Um, which from my point of view was almost near impossible. I was just like, that can't be like the bigger you are. It, it would be more detached, more removed from yourself and, and who you, the essence of who you are and like why you started this to begin with. And he was like, I don't understand your question because the bigger I get, the bigger the company gets, the more of myself is invested in it than ever. And I was like, oh yeah. Like I didn't think about it from that point of view, from that perspective of this has become your life. Like 
I turned 40, 40 this year. I started this brand when I was 23. So within the next few years, there's going to be a point where the hundreds is the majority of my life, right? So like that is the biography of who Bobby is, is you just have to look at what's transpired within the last set, two decades of this company. Like that is and so, me. And so do you feel now with each product that it still has to, like you look at it and say, okay, there's there's me in this. There's enough me in this. I can release it. Yeah, it's absolutely. not just like a T-shirt with a swoosh on it, or or not not putting Nike down, but yeah, it's not just a logo. Yeah, everything I sign off on, and there is a fingerprint, something about me that carries and resonates within everything that we offer in the collection. I can point to it all. You know, like everything. Like this is a this hat I'm wearing is a collaboration with two of the guys who work for us. Actually, they're part of. They have a record label called Blondie Beach Records, a uh, black-owned record label, and, and, and the city is really popular. And so I said, let's, you know, we, we all agree, let's do a collaboration together. But even like in the color choices of going from like a darker green to this contrasted like pastel yellow here on the side, I mean, sorry, this pastel pink on the side, um, those are color choices that came from my mom. Like a lot of the color combinations that I am inspired by and that you see reflected in the clothing uh, were instilled from my mom, like when I was growing up, and she was kind of teaching me how to make a lot of art and the way that she would color things. And so um, it, there's a piece of me in everything, right? And it's not just me. It's everyone who works within the building, within the staff. They're all involved. You can see how different chapters of the hundreds are laid out depending on who was working there at the time. You know, there's like this baseline that is, you know, the connective tissue is like me and my partner, Ben. You can see that through everything. But the upper layers of it, there are periods where we look more menswear and trad. And then there are periods where we just got really loud and garish. And you can connect those with uh, whoever was involved in that time who was driving a lot of the design opinion. And so I think, like, it's not just my story, it's everyone's story. No, no, I think that's great because I think, I think everybody at heart is an artist. And to be able to infuse the things you do, whether it's an, an action, an activity, or an object you create, or a relationship you have, to infuse that with your philosophy, your take on things, your story, I think that's really valuable. And it's it's something that we often forget in our society. And And I know for myself, I've been a writer for a long time. And those periods where I've wrestled with feeding the audience versus continuing my own journey, those have been very difficult times. Like yeah. it's it's a hurdle you have to go through as as an artist, Not and it's not necessarily an interesting story to talk about that hurdle, but it's still a hurdle that you have to go through. Yeah. But um, I, 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 sorry to just throw in one no, last okay. thought on that subject. I, one of the, the common things I talk about in the book is how um, the, my approach to design is all must contain an opinion, right? Like all design mm. has an opinion. Like that's your personal fingerprint, and that's what makes it special. Because look, at the end of the day, especially in streetwear, no design has is original. <laughs> like it, it, we come from a world of parody and reappropriation over and over and over again. So anything that's cool and it's done, it's been done. And so what makes it unique is that you did it and your personal opinion on it changed it you know, forever. And that's what I think people want from us as designers more than even just the design or the art, is they want our opinion. They want our human touch, our perspective, our point of view. They want to understand that, whether or not they even agree with it, right? So I even talk, I talk about this a lot even within the realm of 
politics, I tell people all the time, like when if they're starting a brand, being a business owner, I'm like, be transparent and communicative and honest with where you stand on things, whether or not you think people are going to agree. It's not about that, right? Like so many of my followers have completely opposing politics. So I sit in the direct messages and I debate and we discuss and they don't agree with a lot of the things that I say, but what they, they always come out with is like, thank you for just being honest and telling me how you really feel about things, regardless of what's popular or trendy or regardless of what's going to sell or you're going to be able to make money against. I can just tell that you're genuine about it because I also change my mind all the time when it comes to political opinions, right? And people can see that throughout the course of the, the, my career where they're like, oh, you're starting to sound like you're more receptive to the gun conversation. And I'm like, well, yeah, you know, like, again, with new information, I have new opinions. Like, my opinions, we're always in the pursuit and process of getting somewhere. Like, don't hold me to what I'm saying right now. You know, like, this is a journey. Like, I'm 40 years right. old. I'm not 20 anymore. A lot of things I believed in at 20, I don't believe in that anymore. But it was important that I believed in 20 in order for me to do what I did at 20, you know, to, to the world. Yeah, like, I remember when I was 20 just having so many, like, angry fights with my dad about, <laughs> I don't know, Iran-Contra or whatever, like yeah. something just stupid. And now it's really like, I, I, I think it's more about asking questions than having answers yes. because you see on Twitter, obviously nobody has answers yeah. and, you know, uh, and discourse is important. Like you need mm. to be able to, to work with people and to have pluralism, to have many voices to create a society. Yeah. And hopefully we don't become too polarized in this process. But so, so now though, like, let's say kids are out there. What, what is youth culture right now? Oh yeah. That's like such what, an what are you saying? Question. I think um, if you'd asked me that question 10 years ago, I, and I, I was very jaded and fatigued by everything. I, I believe that it didn't exist anymore. Like the underground didn't exist. I'm like, how can subculture exist in the world of the internet where everything's accessible and you can learn about everything overnight, but there is still such viable, strong, like vibrant subculture and underground that exists that um, just the fact that you wonder, oh, is it out there is like, that's exactly the point. Like it's invisible to people our age. And I discover things all the time where I'm like, wait, what's, who's doing what in the back of which coffee shop? And then I'll show up and, you know, they're like having like a little performance or something's going on, but uh, it's happening constantly with these kids. And a lot of it's happening off the grid, even if it's happening online. You know, you're only getting like mysterious little snippets of it. But I think now what's happening with a lot of youth culture, it is interwoven with um, capitalism, with entrepreneurialism. You know, it's done in a way where let's, let's make money, even if it's to move money into different directions, you know, from activist causes, or I just want to push my money towards a certain individual. Um, but they've figured that out that part of the puzzle where it's not just art for art's sake, but like, let's make art and make money against it and like use those together, you know, for better and for worse. And so that gen this generation is just so savvy in terms of how they're operating business and developing brands in a way where it's, sec it's second nature to them. You know, from the moment that they set up a TikTok profile, they are um, architecting the marketing around it. They are es essentially establishing a brand. Right? So Which is not not a bad thing necessarily. No. Like it's removing power from yeah. the corporate giants to the individual. Oh yeah, you know, like we're a testament of that. We're just a very early testament of that. Of you know, a brand like ours may not have been able to exist if it was born 
10 years prior, you know, because we just were set up so differently. But we sold online, we went direct, you know, we cut out, we couldn't take out advertising and magazines, you know, in the early 2000s, and as ad space was like $10,000 a page, you know, and so we were like, we can't advertise, how are people going to know about us? Well, we have the internet, it's free, you know, let's blanket the internet, you know, let's take advantage of all these free opportunities to get our name out there. And so we just manipulated the internet through blog, through early social, to get our name out there. And like, that's how we existed. Otherwise, I don't think we would have ever been able to enter a lot of these spaces. People would have never known we'd existed. You know, so um, I don't know. I just now this generation of kids that are growing up, they are just so knowledgeable and so much more deft at understanding a lot of this than I ever am. Like they just come into setting up an Instagram profile with or a TikTok profile with like, I already know how to build merchandise against it. Like everyone is a brand from the moment they set up their bio and they have a link tree or they have some kind of Shopify card against it and they're making $100,000 overnight, you know, and taking all that money away from Mervyn's and Robinson's May and everyone's just like, now it's going into like just kids. Well, if you were, if you were 19 years old right now, how, what would you do? How would you be thinking? I feel like I'm, I run this exercise every day. Because I, I have to, because my competitors are 19, my customers are 19. Yeah. And so I'm constantly trying to look at, you know, and we are partners in other brands too that are run by much younger people. They're much younger brands. And so I am looking at things in their way. First of all, you know, when we started, it was you had to sell to stores, you know. And so like that is not in the conversation much anymore. And then there was a generation that was, to be a legitimate brand, you have to have your own store, like an actual brick and mortar flagship store. And now that's not a part. We had, there was a point in time where we had four stores like that across the country, uh, two here in LA, San Francisco, and New York, you know, paying exorbitant like $20,000 a month in Soho to run the hundreds in New York for like five or six years. And like, we don't really need to have that conversation anymore, especially if a city like New York is going to be hurting for a little bit if it does, you know? So like that, even the conversation of, how do we approach retail and selling? How do we make our brand experiential and feel a certain way um, without you actually ever even having to come into contact with it? Like, how do we communicate as humans behind this brand and reach our customer, another human on the other side? Like, how can we do it in a way that feels really logical and organic? Like, the easy answer today, like in this moment right now on this Monday, is like, oh, you set up a Twitch, right? Like, you got to set up a Twitch channel, and oh, are you on, um, uh, you know, the, whatever the next big app is, you know? Like, are you doing the new reels on Instagram? And like, that's the easy answer. Like, we all know that. We have all the access to the technology and the tools. There's always going to be different technology. They're tools, right? Like, we just use them to facilitate the communication. But how are we looking at br- developing our brand and business in a way that is uh, contrary or different or distinct from what everybody else is doing, you know, speaking in a way that resonates in a louder way that does like everyone's speaking this language, we're going to speak in this language now. Um, and then how do we build communities in a way that no one has ever uh, really thought to do before and also in a way that um, is really helpful to what people need right now, right? So like when we were starting our company, um, we knew that there was this really cool scene happening in L.A., but the lens was focused on Tokyo and uh, New York at that time in the early 2000s, 2000s around streetwear. And, and L.A. was kind of corny. It was reality shows and just like, you know, bad, like bedazzled hats and stuff like that. And so we were like, we need to be helpful in a way. Where can we, how can we put the emphasis on really cool L.A. things that are happening? You know, concentrating on our town and people around us. 
He, so we started just writing stories about each person that we're hanging out with. This is Abram. He's an artist. He's doing this like right now. You know, and just one person at a time. Like, I want you to meet my friend Flynn. He's a rapper. You know, he's coming up. A lot of those people ended up turning into really big deals, and they will always point back to the hundreds was the one who put me on first. You know, and I can say that for a lot of cool big celebrities now. But in that that helped us in the end just to be in the beginning or in the end just to be helpful from the beginning, right? The rising tide lifts all boats thing. Like I believe that wholeheartedly. Just business wide, right? Like the our Fairfax Streetwear district in Los Angeles happened because we were all interested in promoting each other, right? So like that's on my Instagram stories this week, and I dedicated the entire thing to supporting another brand called Chinatown Market, which is also very popular, new, much cooler than the hundreds right now. And I was just telling them this is what they have going on. Whenever I do that, people are like, "Why are you doing this? Is a competitor? They're taking?" And I'm like, "We are so small. There are." Somewhere between six and eight billion people in the world, right? Like I'm going to hit twelve thousand people with this. It's, it's, we're so minuscule and non, non. We're just a non-issue, non-threat, right? Like we need all of us to build up for everyone to look at us together. Like there's just so much opportunity. I think that's really important. I think also it kind of signals to everybody that you're abundant. That you're abundant in your ideas. That creativity is yes. a well that doesn't run dry. And so you can build up other creatives without sacrifice. It's not a zero-sum game. It's not like, oh, I'm saying he's creative, so I can't be creative anymore. Like I always say, like like Google, if you go to Google and say, Google, tell me about skateboards, Google's going to say, hey, James, I don't know anything at all about skateboards, mm. but here's 10 websites you should go to it. And by the way, all these web, all websites are competitive with each other because you're either looking at one website or you're looking at us, but we want you to go as fast as possible to these other websites and knock yourself out. And hey, if you like us, come back. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the whole Google approach is to send people away as quick as possible, to recommend <laughs> other websites as quickly as possible. It's so true. They measure their success by how fast you get off their website. <laughs> that's such a good point. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't... <laughs> I never thought about it that way, but I do love that word that the choice of word that you use in terms of being abundant with ideas. And I've never been, I'm not precious with my ideas, you know. And I, I think I just acknowledge that I don't own many of the ideas, even if I feel like they were conjured up in my head. I do know they're inspired, and it, within the context of my experiences, it came from somewhere. But I don't own that idea, and I know that at the same time, I'm bigger than. And one idea or five ideas or ten ideas. Like I can, if anyone's going to take something from me or steal from me, that's okay. Like you need it more than I need it. Like I, I have, I have another one. You know. And so, so what's next now? Like, do you, if obviously, if someone says, "Hey, here's a trillion dollars. Will you sell your company?" <laughs> You'll probably do it. But like, what, what do you want to do? Well, right now, um, we're concentrating on figuring out how this brand is going to you know, navigate and sustain over the next year, like many small businesses are. Um, I'm trying to make, figure out a way to take care of my staff and make a, the experience like just whole and interesting and exciting for them because we are such a tight-knit business. The way that we do things with our company is that we're all friends and family here and the fact that we are separated and many of us are working from home has been a little bit difficult to maintain a lot of those relationships. So figuring that part out is probably always top of mind. Um, and then just outside of the hundreds world, you know, just writing more, 
you know, I'm working on this next book. I want to write more fiction. Um, there's some like Hollywood stuff at play that has kind of transpired in the wake of the memoir. This is not a T-shirt, and so um, I want to write. You know, I think I've always kind of romanticized this idea. At the end of my life, I'm going to be in a cottage somewhere, uh, writing books and essays and poems, and like that's what I get off on more than anything else. And surfing as much as I can. Do you do you surf more or you skateboard more? I surf way more now. I'm old. It hurts less when I fall. I always wish, I wish I could just go back in time and be a kid just to say I was a skateboarder. Like, I just never did it as a kid. It wasn't in my suburb, skateboards. Nobody did it. Yeah, no so I one, didn't do no it. No one really did it. So in the, skateboarding was really big in the 80s. And then um, after, like, Tony Hawk, Christian Asoy, the Alva thing, like, it kind of dipped in the early 90s. And that's when I found it. And I wasn't actually ever really good at skating. Like, I just, I only have a few tricks under my belt. Um, I'm, I'm just not, like, I don't have great balance. Like, I just wasn't really, I'm not an athletic person really much at all. And so, but I was drawn to it because it was the thing that was counted out and was, like, the minority subculture. So it's like, whoa, you still skateboard? You know, just so I could point my finger back at them and be like, you'll see one day it's going to come back and it'll be bigger than ever. And, and then when everyone discovered skateboarding, like, five or six years later, and then there was X Games and all the stuff, I was just like, I told you, you know, like, that whole... That whole thing of like I'm the underdog and I know better than everybody else, but yeah, you know. t Tony Tony Hawk waited it out. He was just like yeah, making skateboards during that whole period. He's for so no smart. money, and also credit to his sister Pat and to Steve, his brother. Like it's 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 really like they're the masterminds of the entire thing too. So like they, you've had Tony on the show before, I'm yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, like they, he's a great guy. yeah, I think I saw that. So they're they're really smart. They're really smart. Yeah, yeah. Well, as are you, Bobby Hundreds. This is not a T-shirt by Bobby Hundreds. This was really, I really enjoyed reading this. Like you, you're going in and out of time. You're, you're, the, the story structure is great. Like it's a really good read about a business, about a subculture. And again, it's not just, it's not like reading a business story. Like I really enjoy stories of subcultures. Like I think there's something magical about. Yeah about subcultures and i've always found myself attracted to them and uh yeah to, to this day and i i think i don't grow old because because of that like i'm always what's what's the next thing i could be excited about and then i give up everything for that thing yeah yeah so i i'm well, very lucky to be able to live and work in this space every single day of my life yeah well thanks again for coming on thanks, uh, uh the the show and the the hundreds.com people could buy your clothes, I don't know. Oh, you know, I was gonna ask you one other thing. Yeah. It's just a dumb thing. But, you know, the thing about clothing is that you have to work within a, a solid structure. Like a, a shirt has two sleeves, a jacket has two sleeves, you know, pants yeah. have two leg pants. And how do you innovate in structure as well as design? I know this is just a random question out of nowhere. It's not a random question. I think that's, um, that's the challenge, right? I think that's why that's, that's where it gets really interesting and innovative because you have these really set guidelines. You have boundaries around what you can do and like what can you, like you think that you're limited to that, but there's actually so much space from within that to innovate and change and create something new. You know, and even in the fit of, let's say a pair of pants, right? There's so many ways to, to design the pants just from little nominal incremental changes, a dart, 
you know, that goes down the back pocket or um, a welt pocket versus like a fuller cargo pocket, like that changes the way that your bottom looks and sits, you know? So yes, like the idea of pants, like two leg openings, um, you know, yeah, sure. But then once you mix up the materials, like you can have a denim and within the denim, like there's different different types of denim, different weights and ounces, and all of that affects the structure of how you look and how you feel, right? Like right now, the discussion largely is around a lot of comfortable loungewear, uh, sportswear, at-home sweats, right? Like that's, I think the New York Times Magazine had a cover story on this last week about, you know, we're sweatpants nation now, where it's all about sweats. I, I, I even disagree with that. Not that I'm a fashion expert, as you could see, <laughs> but since April, I've worn nothing but pajamas. <laughs> so I've I've been on airplanes, I've been in restaurants, I've been out, I've been at Black Lives Matter protests, and I just wear pajamas because why not? It's by definition the most comfortable clothes. We could sleep in them. Yeah. What does anybody? What else does anybody need? And then they feel good. They I, they usually yes. look good. Yeah. So that's that's always been my thing. Is as long as you feel good in them, then you're your confident and most stylish self. Like you're gonna look the best if you feel. The best. Like some people need a suit to feel their best. Mm. Like they don't feel comfortable in pajamas. Like they feel complete when they're wearing like a three-piece bespoke suit. That's not me. I feel complete when I dress like this. I was in law school. There was a period of time where I would wear a suit to work every day. And I just, you could look at, like even if you didn't know who I was, you'd look at me and be like, that guy just looks uncomfortable in mm. his suit. Or he looks like he's wearing his dad's suit, which people, lawyers would tell me all the time, like, dude, you just don't look good. And I'm like, but it's an expensive suit and everything is trimmed right. But I'm like, I just don't, it's like you can, it, there's, an, there's an vibrance or something around it that just feels off. But me, I'm wearing dicky pants, which I've been wearing since I was 12 years old. You know, like Nike shoes that I've been wearing for 20 years, like a new era hat that I've been wearing forever. Like this, this is me. Like I am my 100% optimal self, dressed like this every day. This is how fashion works. Excellent. <laughs> Thank you, Bobby Hendricks, for coming on the show. <laughs> Thanks, James. Hot off the press from Maybelline New York, it's new Lifter Plump, an intense plumping lip gloss formulated with chili pepper to deliver a heated sensation for an instant plumping effect that lasts. From eight sizzling shades like Blush Blaze, Red Flag, Hot Honey, Cocoa Zing, and more. An extra-large wand applicator transforms lips in one swipe. Learn more at Maybelline.com. For a limited time, get 10% off your Lifter Plump purchase on Amazon with code 10PLUMP.